Without adding more hours to your day or increasing your fees, how can you improve the speed of your cash flow? Guess what? It all has to do with picking the right codes. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and my guest today is Jane Tuttle, who is a certified coding educator and compliance specialist at Coding Education Endeavors. She's got more than 20 years of experience in healthcare administration, including practice management, billing, coding, reimbursement, chart auditing, corporate compliance, and HIPAA regulations. Today we're going to talk about the 2008 OIG report. What's new? Jane, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be here. All right, Jane, I guess the first question is what the heck is OIG? It stands for the Office of the Inspector General. This is the office that is the nationally appointed office for overseeing the health and human services issues. So what happens is every year the OIG, or the Office of the Inspector General, is assessed with the task of making sure that Medicare dollars are spent appropriately and there's no fraud going on. So as a result, they come up with a work plan and discuss in the work plan the areas that they feel are problematic or potentially misunderstood in terms of regulatory and billing issues or where there's some potential wrongdoing and decide that they're going to go forward and look at these issues. All right, so they probably have their work cut out for them if they're dealing with trying to find fraud each year because whatever law they change, you know the next year there's going to be some someone out there who's going to try and find loopholes to it. Well, you know, it's amazing to me how many things come up on the work plan year after year repeatedly. The same kind of things tend to be typically problematic. This year, the things that have repeated themselves that look like stuff that has been on the work plans in previous years are E&M services, again, evaluation and management services. But this year, there's a little bit of a twist on that to say that E&M services that were performed during a global surgery period are now going to be looked at a little bit more cautiously and a little bit more closely. What could be new with E&M services? I don't get it. Well, you know, of course, they started out looking at the high-level E&M services, the level five office visits, level five consultations. Eventually, the level five started to go down to level fours, et cetera. Now they've gone down to look at even when E&M services are billed inappropriately during a global surgical period. Usually when physicians are paid for procedures and the procedure has a global surgical period associated with it, that's a bundled payment. And regardless of whether or not we believe the payment is adequate, it is expected that the physician is being paid already for the pre-op management of the patient the intraoperative service, and the postoperative care. Yeah, but that does not take into account if something bad goes wrong or they have a complication post-op and they need to come back every day. Right, and that's the problem. Many physicians are very frustrated by this, so feel as though there should be some mechanism for them to be able to bill for complications. Right, so they, I would imagine they get creative and pick different diagnoses. Yeah, well, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that the OIG wants to look at, and these are the kind of things that I would suggest physicians are very, very cautious about because it is on the work plan and it is being looked at. Due to the frustration physicians feel about the perception of whether or not this global surgical reimbursement is adequate to support different types of postoperative complications, Medicare's regulations are very clear and they say, essentially, if that patient is not sent back to the OR, returned to the operating room, then the complication is not considered sufficient enough to warrant additional payment beyond the global surgical package. If I was a surgeon and I got a bunch of calls from someone post-op, I'd say, go see your internist or go to the ER. 
I wouldn't want to see them again. See, and this is this is my fear too, and that's really unfortunate. It is unfortunate, and that's one of the side effects of these regulatory restrictions that I imagine are happening. So the government doesn't get it. They don't realize that if anything they do, there's going to be a backlash. So now there's going to be more emergency room visits, and it's going to cost them more than if they just paid the surgeon a little more to see the patient. You know, I, I think there's good data that shows that that is potentially the case. And, you know, I, I think that at some point in time, the government is going to have to get it because the cost of health care is spiraling so far out of control. Trying to control the reimbursement to physicians is having another side effect, and it's not resulting in overall cost containment. So that's one of the things that OIG is looking at this year. What are they doing with psychiatric services this year? How are they deciding not to pay for it this time? <laughs> well, Medicare payment for psychiatric services is available to physicians, but again, physicians have to be able to demonstrate in their documentation that they are considered reasonable and necessary. Now, whenever I talk about reasonable and necessary or medically necessary to physicians, I always help them understand that your perspective of medical necessity and Medicare's perspective may not be the same. Medicare has very specific regulations about what warrants psychiatric inpatient hospital care, and they have what are called national coverage determinations and local coverage determinations. If the diagnoses associated with the treatment that's being rendered do not meet those qualifications, Medicare may wind up determining that this is not technically a medically necessary service. So that's one area they're looking in. The other area they're looking in is Services that are provided to an inpatient or skilled nursing facility patient that are psychiatric services rendered by a clinical social worker. They do not pay on the Medicare B side for clinical social worker services. They will only reimburse that on the Medicare Part A side. So there's some concern about psychiatric physicians potentially listing their names on the claim and having clinical social workers actually rendering the service, and this being uh, you know, a problem in terms of what Medicare is willing to cover and pay for. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm talking today with Jane Tuttle, who is a certified coding educator and compliance specialist, and we're talking about the 2008 OIG report. Jane, what about outpatient psychiatric help? Is that covered by Medicare? If I see someone in my office who is depressed and or anxious, which is pretty much my entire practice, can I, God forbid, use a three code? You absolutely can use it. And, you know, again, as a compliance expert, I do have to say, look, you know, you really have to report what you did accurately and, and be honest about it. What can happen, however, is that because it is a diagnosis code that is associated with a psychiatric disorder, potentially, the reimbursement may be reduced down to that at the level that's paid for for psychiatric services. So there's a little bit of a different reimbursement schedule. Even though I'm spending the same 20 minutes with the patient doing support psychotherapy, if I put a psych code versus 99214, I am encouraged to bill fraudulently, basically, is what you're saying, to, to get paid appropriately. No, no. I, essentially, what I would suggest in that kind of a situation is that a physician bill for office visits, and when the majority of the office visit is spent counseling the patient regarding their medical problem, and let's not forget, psychiatric issues are medical problems, then they can use office visit-based codes. I don't usually recommend that physicians in office-based practices use 
psychotherapy counseling codes, to be very honest with you, because, frankly, they are not always providing that talk therapy. They are more often trying to educate the patient about what kind of treatment alternatives that they can um, access and what's, you know, what other covered services they may be able to get in order to you know, help them along with their treatment. To veer a little off of Medicare a little bit, Aren't there some private insurers out there that if I put a 99214 and I hook it up with an ICD-9 code that, let's say, 311 depression, they're not going to pay me versus if I put nervousness, they will pay me? Yeah, that could be a coverage issue related to some commercial payers, and some commercial payers do have those kind of coverage limitations. And essentially, they're telling you, look, you know, if you're a primary care provider, we want you to provide the care appropriate to your specialty. But they're delusional if they think that everybody out there is going to see a psychiatrist because most people see their primary care physician for their psychiatric care, and it's insanity. Well, you know, this, the primary care physician is the point of entry to the healthcare system. If the primary care physician is the first person that's getting these issues reported to them and the patient is confiding in the primary care physician, they're going to encourage the patient to seek out the type of treatment that they need. Right, which we do, and they don't seek it out. They refuse it, or they're not comfortable with it, and they keep coming back to us every week for their depression. And I can't bill it as depression because I I won't get paid, so I have to write nervousness or insomnia or just pick one of their symptoms. And once again, I am, as a physician, I'm being forced to play the system because the system is flawed. It's broken. I wouldn't disagree with you there. You know, it's a frustrating reality that certain services, in in fact, psychiatric services, also eye care services and dental services are what they call sort of carve-out services, and they're not considered the mainstream for many of these large payer communities, payer plans. And the way that payers are able to reduce the burden on them is to carve out coverage for some of these services or modify the amount of coverage for some of these services. So again, when you agree to contract with these payers, there's oftentimes within the contract language discussion about that, you know, whether medical services are considered payable at 100% of the physician fee schedule, that optometry services are not available within that plan, and that psychiatric services are at a different rate. So these are the kind of things I caution physicians to be really careful about and read before they sign these agreements to contract with a particular payer because the payers are telling you that that's what they're going to do many times in the contract terms. And you have the right at that point to say, "Um, I'm not sure I agree with this policy. Can we negotiate a little bit? Jane, the OIG is looking at the use of MRI which is probably what they've been doing for the last few years, I can imagine, because everybody's got an MRI scanner on their corner, and all those MRI scanners need revenue, and so they make some perhaps shady arrangements with physicians. So tell me what you're aware of and what's being worked on. Well, what the OIG has said in their work plan for 2008 is that they're going to look at these business relationships and the use of MRI, and they are going to specifically look at the effect of a business relationship and a physician's ownership status in an MRI facility on utilization. Of course, the utilization will go up if the physician owns it. Right. So they're going to try to get at whether or not there's any impropriety going on there. Isn't that what Stark laws are here for? That's what they are here for. And the OIG is ready to enforce them, it seems to me. That that is the statement they're making by putting this on their work plan. And how exactly are they going to enforce it? Just by saying, we will no longer pay you if you own 
an MRI center? I mean, how are they going to go out and, and police that? Well, when the OIG puts a particular item like this on their work plan, it's not necessarily policing going on. It's a decision that they suspect there could be something that they need to be looking at. So what they typically will do is go out and sample and see what the activity is like out there in the field all over the country. And when they start to look and see what activity is occurring, that gives them information about whether or not there's any criminal activity or any impropriety going on. Well, Jane Tuttle, thank you for coming on the show and telling us a little bit about the 2008 OIG report. You are welcome. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments at ReachMD, and you can check us out on the web at ReachMD.com, and we're now featuring on-demand podcasts of everything we've done. Check it out.